So here's an interesting line in meditation. May I experience the world without preference or prejudice. May I experience the world without preference or prejudice. How does that land for you? (laughs) This is an equanimity phrase. And it's not actually intended to be an aphorism or something that we think about, really. It has a purpose. It has a function of saying a phrase like that is that, you may notice, it puts you in touch with the parts of your mind that are and are not equanimous. It's designed to bring out that contrast. So if you say, may I experience the world without preference or prejudice, you'll find the parts that think that would be lovely, and there's a feeling of openness and ease. You also will encounter the part that objects to that and would really prefer things to be a certain way. And if that happens, which would be good, it's, it's good for us to find the parts of our mind that are going along with their way of being. It's good to see, see all those parts. So if there's some <coughs> protest, then it's possible to just observe the energy of protest without preference or prejudice. Oh, how interesting. There it is. Just ride that wave. It's a great way to practice. How would that feel? To be okay just with the fact that your mind has preferences and prejudices. Here's a twist on this phrase. You just change the the subject. May my loved ones experience the world without preference or prejudice. One student tried this practice for a week and found that he didn't want his loved ones to experience the world without preference or prejudice because then they would see him that way and they might no longer like him. That was his thought. This is very revealing, actually, um, to have that experience of saying that phrase and having that response because it helped him to see that he considered himself to be droppable. You know, that somebody could just decide, oh, when I see this guy the way he is, I don't want to be with him anymore. And he really thought that would happen. And so that says that there's a part of him it sees himself that way. He didn't really know that until he tried that phrase. So what is equanimity? Internally, equanimity is a deep balance of the mind that's rooted in insight rooted in wisdom. And among other people, it is seeing 
the fundamental equality of all beings. So we don't get overpowered by our own reactive or unskillful states of mind. And we also don't get overpowered by the words or actions of others. This is a mind that's quite strong. It's said to be, um, it develops, we develop this strength in relative, relative to what are called the eight worldly winds, which we've all experienced. They are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. It's sometimes said that a human life is just characterized by these eight. And of course, because of our preferences and prejudices, we would really like to have just four of them and forget about the other four. And we spend a lot of our effort trying to get pleasure, gain, praise, and for some, fame. It actually just means like a good reputation in a group. So we try to have that. And try not to have the other four. But unfortunately, these come as a pair. You don't get one without the other. So it's kind of a fruitless quest to try just to have the four. Equanimity is the medicine for that. Nyanaponikatera says, we feel how our heart responds to all this, meaning the eight worldly winds, the way life goes. We feel how our heart responds to all this, with happiness and sorrow, delight and despair, disappointment and satisfaction, hope and fear. These waves of emotion carry us up and fling us down. And no sooner do we find rest than we are in the power of a new wave again. this is beginning to sound exhausting, then we may begin to turn and warm up to this quality, turn toward and warm up to this quality of equanimity as the ballast. Not because we're going to become bland, unemotional, feelingless, boring creatures, that's the reactive, the reactive mind's characterization of equanimity. That's the part that protested that mind. Um, but actually, equanimity is very rich because it, it's not worried about getting those four that it doesn't want. So it's very open to what is really happening much more in touch with reality. You can richly experience the fullness of life with true equanimity. Equanimity needs development. One of the qualities that is latent in us 
Some people have more or less as a baseline, but it can always be developed, and it tends to need development. It's like a little plant that we have to protect and water and feed, and then it will grow, but it might not if we don't. And one way that we develop it is by challenging our current level of equanimity with greater exposure to suffering or to situations where we might cling. We learn to be with more and more challenging situations, developing inner strength. So if you're, as my teacher says, if you're only free when you're comfortable, you're not really free. So instead of seeking the comfort, we seek ways to check how free we are and to expand that domain. Of course, life will deliver us plenty of these, so it's not that we need to look too hard, but having this attitude that these new challenges that come are good ways to expand our freedom, very helpful, given that new challenges are always going to come, right? So we do somehow, though, develop a deeper strength of heart to be able to handle more and more things with balance and poise. It could be very difficult or painful things. I did say we would encounter more suffering in order to test our equanimity. But I think it's important to remember that we have to be equanimous also with very um, joyous and especially very strong sensual stimulations of any kind. We might easily get caught up or carried away. So it's actually just as important to develop, be able to be mindful at a celebration as in a war zone. We tend to think it's kind of okay to lose ourselves in pleasure. Um, But actually the pleasure will be deeper and more helpful for us if we're mindful of it. One of the explicit um, challenges that people sometimes bring to the development of equanimity is um, what does it have to do with compassionate action? You know, if, I, if I'm so deep and balanced, would I really get up off the couch and go do something? If we see suffering and we're moved to help, where is there room for equanimity? Remember, equanimity isn't, it doesn't have a strong preference, so we don't have a preference for sitting on the couch either. Right? We wouldn't choose that necessarily if we were equanimous. <clears throat> In fact, it's said that wisdom and compassion are the two wings to awakening, so we will need both. And equanimity. Here's the link. Equanimity supplies the wisdom to compassion. Compassion without wisdom is not very effective. It doesn't actually relieve suffering very well. This happens in minor and major ways. I had a friend one time who was a hospice volunteer, and um, she went to, it it, it was a place where they visited people's houses, So she went to a house where someone was dying and was serving there for a few hours. 
and she uh, very helpfully did all the dishes because they had a lot of dishes piled up. So she was helping by doing all the dishes, but when the family came home, they didn't want the dishes done. They had some reason why they didn't want that or that was part of their system or something. So she had not really helped. <laughs> um, this is a small example, but you have to remember, and the whole she had it never occurred to her that that wouldn't be helpful. So we sometimes have to bring our awareness. Maybe we don't know exactly what the right thing is to help. And there are many, many examples of good-hearted, well-meaning, well-intentioned Westerners attempting to help in the developed world, for example, that don't really help. You know, they're not culturally sensitive, or they're not technologically appropriate. There's so many ways. So it's not actually that easy to help or to serve. It's easy to want to, and then there's the development of the wisdom and the sensitivity and how we do that. This is also from Nayanapanikatera. It was done a very nice analysis of how all the Brahma-viharas uh, interrelate. And that word Brahma-vihara refers to the main heart qualities that we talk about in Buddhism. So loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And they're all interconnected. They're almost like four faces of the same thing, four faces that the heart could put to the world. And so he talks about the different interlinkages, and I'll just read a few of them. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference, and it keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, Compassion urges it again and again to enter the battle of the world in order to strengthen itself. And then on the flip side, equanimity is rooted in insight and is the guiding and restraining power for the other three Brahmaviharas, including compassion. <coughs> equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even, unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair which confront boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. So there's a way in which these qualities are readily accessible, readily available when we say the phrases that often go with these practices, we immediately evoke some version of these heart qualities. But what this is pointing toward is their depth and their spiritual boundlessness that when we really enter into the heart qualities, they just keep unfolding and that they um, combine with our wisdom in ways that are subtle and difficult to predict. Well, to return the focus to equanimity, 
I would add the rejoinder that there is there's no obligation to do compassionate action in the world. It's a calling. And those who are called, there are many, many practices and paths available, but it's not a calling that comes for all beings at all times. Consider the story of the Buddha, who had, of course, been said to have spent many, many lifetimes in the before his birth as Siddhartha Gautama, uh, developing his heart and developing his wisdom. So we don't know what path he took exactly, but when he got to the lifetime where be, he became enlightened, he, uh, he took seven years off to do his own deep spiritual quest. There were plenty of problems in his world. There were always problems in the world. Um, and he chose to go and sit and develop his mind and live in the jungle for years on his own spiritual quest the fruit of which has echoed for 2,600 years. Even after his awakening, the Buddha did not impose ideas of justice on the world. He didn't talk much about that. He didn't seem to express much preference or prejudice about people or about the world. What he cared about was the end of suffering. He mostly talked about karma and left it open to us or helped the beings who asked what actions each being would need to take in order to free their particular heart. So another metaphor, one that I find interesting for Dharma practice, is the, the metaphor of art. I love this analogy, actually, because art has no inherent purpose. And yet it's, it's beautiful, it's engaging, it can be shared, and it's deeply, deeply meaningful for the people who are called to do it. Just like Dharma practice, when Dharma practice gets into your heart, be all these things, beautiful, meaningful, engaging, it can be shared, but it doesn't really impose much on the world. There's a way in which equanimity is very gentle. Wisdom, fruits of Dharma practice, There's a story of a wanderer named Sabia who um, hadn't really committed to a particular teacher. He liked to go and listen to all the teachers and of his time. He lived at the time of the Buddha, and he would go around, and he, would, he judged people by basically how big a following they had. And he would say, oh, this guy's got a lot of people following him. I'm going to go see what he has to say. And so he would go and he had questions. He would go and ask his questions. And he, he learned that many of the teachers at the time uh, got angry with his questions or refused to answer them. And so he got discouraged. But then 
he remembered that there was one more teacher he hadn't talked with. Oh, the Buddha, that's right. He has a big following, too. Maybe I should go ask him. And he has a brief moment where he just says, well, the Buddha's kind of young. This was pretty soon after the Buddha was enlightened. And so he's kind of young. I don't know. These other guys that I asked were, were older. They were probably wiser. But then he remembers, no, 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 wait. doesn't matter. Even somebody who's young could be highly advanced. So he goes and he, he says to the Buddha, Perplexed and full of doubt, I've come desiring to ask questions. Please put an end to them for me. Please answer me in accordance with the Dhamma. And the Buddha doesn't get angry about this. He says, You have come from afar, desiring to ask questions. I will put an end to them for you. Please ask your questions, and I will answer you in accordance with the Dhamma. So be as delighted by this. And he asks a bunch of questions, but I just picked out this one. In what way is one gentle, and how do they call one tamed? And the Buddha says, equanimous toward everything, mindful, one who does not injure anyone in all the world, an ascetic who is crossed over, unsullied, for whom there are no swellings, he is gentle. One whose faculties have been developed internally and externally in all the world, having pierced through this world and the next, one develops, one developed who awaits the time, he is tamed. The language is, there's some interpretation there, but essentially he says that when the mind becomes very attuned to the world internally and externally, our experience and the way the world is unfolding, the response is to become very equanimous, very gentle. We no longer want to injure any beings. There was that word swellings. Um, That's a translation of a set of qualities that are things like (coughs) greed, aversion, conceit, envy. Qualities where we are swelling up with something, a preference or a prejudice, essentially. Um, And so one who doesn't have those is very gentle and is said to have tamed the mind. And then from there, we can act with freedom. So if you prefer the Zen version, I have this poem from Chong Zhu called When the Shoe Fits. Chui the draftsman could draw more perfect circles freehand than with a compass. His fingers brought forth spontaneous forms from nowhere. His mind was meanwhile free and without concern with what he was doing. No application was needed. His mind was perfectly simple and knew no obstacle. So, when the shoe fits, the foot is forgotten. When the belt fits, the belly is forgotten. When the heart is right, for and against are forgotten. 
no drives, no compulsions, no needs, no attractions, then your affairs are under control. You are free. Easy is right. Begin right and you are easy. Continue easy and you are right. The right way to go easy is to forget the right way and to forget that the going is easy. This is kind of Dharma as art. You know, when the mind lets go of all of that manipulation, trying to get the four of the eight worldly winds that we want, and the four not have the four that we don't want, and our preferences and prejudices and pushings and pullings and swellings, then there's a certain freedom that emerges that allows us to draw perfect circles freehand to bring forth forms which could include helping others and actually helping others instead of doing so from a place of fear or anger. Or it could include going to sit in the mountains or making beautiful art that inspires people or just being a good family person. The thing about freedom is that it's free. But there's some development to get there. And the development is this taming of all the outflows of the mind. So it's an interesting balance, isn't it? And it's not that we do like 100% of one and then we get 100% of the other. That's one view. Is that We're going to do all the discipline, and then there's going to be like a big bang moment, and then we're completely free. But it's more like um, evolutionary, and there are parts where we're applying discipline and effort um, because they're the patterns that have come up, they're the clinging that we have at the surface level, and there are other parts that are quite free. And those are the ideas to just kind of expand the territory of the freedom. It's a process. And one of the great tools for doing that is to have equanimity about how we are, about how the process is going, about other people. That really allows things to unfold and free themselves in a sense. There's a lovely image in the Tibetan tradition of throwing two snakes that are throwing, I guess it's a knotted snake. You throw a knotted snake in the air and it untangles itself, right? You can imagine this image. (laughs) And so there's something like that in the mind where we have a tangle. And instead of like sitting there and painstakingly working on it, I don't want to try to untangle a snake. (laughs) But uh, maybe if I throw it in the air, uh, it can do that itself. There's a way in which practice can be like that. Maybe that's the compassionate way. These are my thoughts on something. Are there any questions or comments?
notice in myself there is a strong desire for freedom. And so I guess my question is, um, does the desire to be free get in the way to be free? Only at the very end. I once asked my teacher, um, I said, I, I have this desire to be free, but I thought we were supposed to let go of all desire. And he said, oh, you can have that desire, Kim, until it's the last one. So it's actually a good companion, this desire. Does that help? I guess I, in my mind, I differentiate between like healthy desire and unhealthy. Yeah, that's fine. And I'm kind of not sure (laughs) if this deep longing to be free, if it's uh, if it's healthy or if it's just me getting in my own way to accept what's there or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, how do you connect with this calling? Like, what does it feel like for you or where do you encounter it? feels like a very strong and urgent longing mm-hmm. that makes me also want to practice diligently, mm-hmm. but maybe with too much effort somehow. Mm. Um, it feels like something very pressing and very... Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, this is the quality called samvega, um, also called spiritual urgency. and. Um, it's also a form of faith. It's a dimension of faith. And faith leads to energy. That's kind of the sequence it goes in. So, um, how, do you, how do you know that your practice has too much effort? too much on meditation and when some teachers talk about like aimlessness I I have some trouble with that because I kind of if I'm honest I have an aim and that's freedom right so it's a little bit confusing to me Mm. and how do I know if I'm getting in my own way or not Yeah, so um, first of all, the path has a destination. It's not aimless. And it does have a result. So 
There can be times where the mind has too much aim, and so aimlessness is a nice counterbalance, but there's no um, one way to characterize the path. And so uh, for you, there's a destination, and uh, you don't need to feel that you should give up that goal. But what you're asking is whether you're getting in your own way, and um, Where's the you that's getting in the way? Uh, what comes to mind is the, the grasping quality. Mm-hmm. That's what gets in the way. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And are you able to just feel the quality of that grasping? Can you actually, can you sit with the, the feeling of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. You don't need to do that for hours and hours. It might get kind of intense, but... Um, it's the process of experiencing something completely, whether it's healthy or unhealthy desire, that starts to allow the mind to differentiate between those two. So, um, it's kind of like looking at something that looks all the same at first, and then, but if you keep looking, there's like a a separation or a differentiation uh, between different parts of it. And so this, you've talked about this urgency to be free, and then also a sense that you're grasping at an expectation. Um, and those are like two different sides of the same hand, right? In a sense. And so, um, yeah, to the degree, degree possible, Really open to that energy that's leaning towards something. And you'll be able to see which part of it is closing down, because the energy of grasping, of clinging, is an energy that closes possibilities, gets in its own way, essentially, like a fist. There aren't very many possibilities for a fist. Um, There are more possibilities for something that's open. So, um, whereas the energy of Samvega is actually an opening energy, it's an energy that pushes against barriers and says, this is not free. Whereas the grasping is saying, I don't want to be free. I want to hold this. They're different energies, even though they both feel like pushing, or holding, or gripping. Um, And so, I would encourage letting the mind, letting the heart, learn to distinguish those, so that you can 
use the energy of the samvega to push away the energy of grasping. <coughs> Clear it out in a sense. Does this help? Another distinction, just one more thing coming to mind, another distinction between these two kinds of energy that you're talking about is that um, the energy of grasping is exhausting. So imagine holding your fist and just holding it for 50 years. some of us have, right? (laughs) And this gets really tiring. It's a lot of energy going into this. And if we feel the exhaustion of clinging, that is a great way to help it start to relax. If we don't see the disadvantage of this, we'll just keep doing it. Because we think this is going to be safe, actually. I've got this. I've got it. I need this. I have to have this. including a goal. (laughs) We don't really know what freedom is, so we can't grasp at it. (laughs) Um, Whereas the energy of wanting to be free is not exhausting. It's like the energy of the ocean coming into us. It doesn't come from us. Imagine having the energy in all the ocean available to you. That's what's coming forth from the heart when it's seeking freedom. So you can check, is it energizing, is it nourishing, or is it exhausting? That's another differentiation between the two. I see you nodding at that also. But the path isn't always comfortable. So this urgency, this... I know it's an unpleasant feeling, uh, but it's it's a good companion. I have great faith in mindfulness and in the direction that the path goes. It will snake will untie itself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.